few years ago, we had a choice to make about a car. Uh, my wife's uh, uh, small truck had an engine issue, and it would need a whole new engine to replace it, but it was old enough that the cost of the engine would actually make it more than what the car was worth if we were to get that new engine. So we decided to, to trade it in and get a new vehicle. And car shopping can be tricky because it's very easy to get lost in all of the bells and whistles and, you know, miss the necessities, right? You know, here's the things you need, but here's the things that you want. Well, we, we live in, in Rochester, and, and one of the things that, that we wanted was uh, heated seats. <laughs> um, now that we have heated seats, we had heated seats in the old vehicle, it had moved from, that's just a nice luxury to, we absolutely have to have this. But here's the thing with, with heated seats. Uh, they have to be warm, especially in Rochester, before you get into the vehicle. So the other thing that we wanted, that I, I wanted for, for Krista, I, I don't drive the truck much, but, um, but the other thing we wanted for, for Krista's vehicle was uh, to have a remote car starter. So we started to look around, and we didn't find a lot of vehicles that were listing uh, car starters. And so we said, okay, well, I guess that's something that we'll just have to add in an aftermarket thing. And so in August, we got uh, the vehicle that we have, which I think is a, a, it's a Honda CRV. It's, it's wonderful. We can put the dog in there. Uh, we can fit everybody in there because all of us are over six feet tall, so we need a lot of headspace. Has the heated seats that we wanted, praise God. But no, no, um, no remote car starter. So what I thought I would do that Christmas is that I would go and get a car starter for Krista and get it added to her vehicle as part of her Christmas gift so that she'd be able to, before she, you know, went outside and started to sweep off the car, uh, she'd be able to start the vehicle so that she'd be able to jump right in, the seats would be warm, she'd be ready uh, to go to work. One day Krista came home and she said, we don't need to get a uh, remote car starter. Why? I, what's, what's changed? Have you changed your mind? Is there something that you don't, you know, you, you don't want one anymore? You've decided you're okay with it. She goes, no, it already has one. Wait, wait, what? No, that can't be right. No, no, I was reading through the manual. Guys, get yourself a girl this Valentine's Day that reads through the car manual of the car they own. They are worth more. That's a Proverbs 31 woman right there. Uh, it's, that's the Brian uh, International Translation, the BIT. Uh, but get yourself a woman who reads the car manual of the car she owns. That's fantastic. She read through it and said, no, I think it's got it. And so I went, it can't be because, you know, car manuals often cover a series of models. And so it, you know, it will kind of go all through the options. And unless you have the really luxury car, then it won't have some of those features that it lists. And she goes, no, I think it, it has it. And she pulled out her key fob and we went over to the window. It was night because, you know, in, in Rochester, night hits at 2 p.m. in December. So... She started the car, she, she held down the lock mechanism on the car and then pressed a button with a circle on it. And all of a sudden, the lights came on on the car and you could hear the engine running. 
I went, huh. I had no idea that was there. And we wouldn't have had any idea. Imagine our frustration if I had went and bought a remote car starter and then taken it to either the dealer or a third-party uh, auto place and said, hey, I want you to put this in. And they said, well, surprise, you don't need two. You already have one. We didn't know what we were missing. We didn't know the vehicle was this good. Now, why do I tell you this story? Not so that you run out and get your wife a, a remote car starter, even though that would make a great Valentine's gift if you still need one. That's better than flowers and chocolates in my mind. But, uh, but maybe you do this, be, and this is true of you. There are things that I know now that I wish I had known then. When it came to the car... We were waffling on whether this was the right one because it didn't have all of the options that we wanted. It wasn't listed that there was a remote car starter on the, on the uh, sticker on the window. It wasn't listed on the advertisement. It, we didn't know. We didn't know that it came with that. If we had known that it came with all of the things that we wanted, not only the essentials but the luxuries that we wanted, it would have been a no-brainer. We would have just said, we want that. We wouldn't have even tried to like think about, well, let's think about it for a little while. It was never about price. Price was great because it had way more options than we anticipated. There are things in life that I know now that I wish I knew then. Because if I knew them then, I wouldn't have had all of this anxiety. I wouldn't have wasted all of this time. I wouldn't have worried about, is this the right choice? Is that the right choice? I would have just made the right choice. If I have known the things then that I know now, I would have made better decisions then. And they would have been a lot easier to make, right? The same is true for faith. These are the things that would have helped me live by faith. We started our series in the Gospel of Mark to journey through this very question so that we can think about Jesus and what does it mean for him to be the Son of God? Because we want to make sure our faith is solid. And for every person, for every Christian, no matter how long they've been a follower, the more that we read about who Jesus is from the Gospels, the more that we read about Jesus and who he is from Scripture, the more we begin to realize, I wish I had known then about Jesus what I know now. Because it would have made so much difference in my life for making decisions. These things would have helped me live by faith in confidence. So today, as we return to our series called Son of God, let's start by getting back to what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, a good reminder of something important about who our faith is in. Because faith is only as good as the object that you put it in, right? So, what does it mean to you that Jesus is the Son of God? 
What does it mean in Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God? Let me show you the answer that Mark gives at the end of Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. As you turn there in Scripture, as you begin to see these on the screen, a quick recap. Jesus has just finished teaching about the value of being involved in kingdom ministry. That everyone is sowing the seed, building some kind of kingdom. And the only one that's worth building is the kingdom that God is building. And he's encouraging people to do that. And Jesus has had an incredible day of ministry. And it's at that moment, at the end of that day, we read, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus is exhausted. He's exhausted from a long day of ministry, so much so that he's passed out in the front of a boat. They took him just as he was. He didn't have a chance to shower. He didn't have a chance to grab a bite to eat. He didn't have a chance to grab a nap. He didn't change into a fresh change of clothes. He just jumped on a boat and basically collapsed like a, like a toddler would. You know how toddlers are, right, when it's time for bedtime? They're just full of energy and, and going, 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 going. And then all of a sudden, you can see when that battery's drained. Because they're just like, ah! that's Jesus in this moment. He just collapses because he is exhausted. But something happens. Something happens that's so scary, seasoned fishermen are afraid for their lives. These are men who know how to handle boats, who know how to handle waves. They know the seasons. They know what to do when storms come up on the water. This is their home turf. And they're afraid of drowning. They think this is the end. I think it's uh, interesting that they felt like this. When I was first learning to drive, I had gotten my license and been licensed for a couple of years and uh, I was coming home one morning after, it was either a, a late shift at the gas station that I worked at, the 24-hour gas station, so I was coming home early morning, or it was an overnight youth group event where we had all stayed at the pastor's house and just kind of camped out all over the, the house, and then we were just all headed home, and I remember driving home, and it was dangerous fog. You know the kind of dangerous fog, uh, how dangerous fog can be especially when you get outside of a city, which is where I grew up. I grew up in a town of about, or a city, a village. I grew up with a few huts where there were about 800 people who lived in a small little area, and we lived outside of that area in some hills and in some valleys outside of that. And you know how fog can settle in those hills and valleys. It was so bad 
that there was moisture building up on the windshield from the water condensation of the fog, and I could not see beyond the, the hood ornament of the car. And I knew these roads. These were the roads that I grew up on. We had not moved for the time that I was alive. We had, gr- I had grown up there. I had ridden my bike on these roads. I knew every twist and turn from being a passenger in the car, and now I was driving them. I knew my way home, and yet I didn't know what was coming next. So I immediately slowed right down thinking, please don't let someone else come screaming up doing the speed limit behind me or I'm dead. Statistics, or there's an assumption, I think, that accidents often happen closest to home. I don't know if that's a legitimate statistic anymore, but perhaps you've heard that kind of saying. I've experienced that. When we lived in Albany, I was driving home, and uh, a, a high school student was on her way to school, and she, didn't have a, uh, she did have a stop sign, I didn't. She blew through her stop sign, took out the rear quarter panel of my vehicle, and I just spun onto someone's yard. No fog, perfect weather, and yet all of a sudden, bam! Something came along and hit me, and life has a tendency to do that, doesn't it? And here's the worst part of how that happens. It's a familiar situation. It's a familiar place. It's a place where we, can oft, we often have the most control. And we feel like this is where we should have a semblance of stability. We should have a, a, a semblance of comfort. And it's, this is where it hits us the hardest when we're in those places, when we're near our home, when we're in places that we usually have control, and then all of a sudden life spins out of control. That's what the fishermen followers of Jesus were experiencing. And that's how bad it was for them. They were afraid that they were going to drown. And it's in those moments when it's in the places where we feel like we should have control and we don't. We lose it. That we wonder if Jesus cares. And so they wake Jesus. And what Jesus does is remarkable. We read in verse 39 that he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus speaks to the storm and it stops. Jesus commanded the weather. And that scared the disciples more than the storm. Because it's in that moment they realized that their intellectual understanding of who Jesus was telling them that he was made all sorts of practical, real, 
demonstrable proof. They encountered the power of God. The raw, unadulterated power of God. Here's the thing about God's power. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or not. I don't know if you're a Christian or not. But whatever you think has ultimate power in the universe, that's God. And I think that the Christian Bible has the best picture of what that God should be like. And no other realm of explanation, no other... Uh, belief system, whether that's a belief in, in science, in the universe, that's the ultimate form of power, or whether that's uh, some other religion has a great description of what power really looks like. We don't understand that, but we get this in the way the Bible starts. In Genesis chapter 1, we get a picture of what real power can do when God speaks and reality is formed. The power of His Word causes everything to exist. Just by speaking, things come into existence. Let there be, and it was, over and over and over again with incredible creativity. He speaks, let there be light, and boom! Everything just explodes to become the universe that we know today. To understand how little we know about real power and how uncomfortable we are around this kind of power, we have to look at those great theologians of Hollywood. Because it's Hollywood that's telling us a story about what we really believe about power. How many of you have seen the recent uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies? Probably not many, right? I'm not going to bore you with the details, although I'd encourage you to go out and buy the limited edition DVDs and watch them. They're fantastic stories. As a total nerd, I love them. But here's what they explain about power in those, in those uh, movies. There's an evil villain who wants to destroy half of life throughout all the known universe. But in order for him to do that, as powerful as he is standing up against Earth's mightiest heroes, he still needs the power of five different stones that no one can handle, no one can touch when they're all combined together. So he needs some kind of special gauntlet that he can put them all on. And then he places them all on, and then he snaps his fingers and makes his will be done. And everyone fights against this. They fight against this power. No one should have this kind of power. No one should have this kind of authority. It's too dangerous. And yet here we see this picture of someone who's even more powerful than some guy in a glove with some stones on them. And he speaks. And nature itself immediately obeys. That kind of power is unfathomable, and yet Jesus has that kind of power. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is God, very God. His power is unlimited. He has no end to His authority. He has no end to His ability to change everything. Unlimited power in one human 
He has the power of God to exert authority over all natural forces. And if you thought that was enough, just wait because there's more. In Mark 5, the story continues. They get to the other side. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. No one could stop the power that was in this man. It was a supernatural, impure spirit that was in this man. They tried chains and they couldn't stop him. He broke chains around his hands and his feet consistently. Just picture a a weightlifter or a bodybuilder or a wrestler and how many people that would take in order to take someone down and then add supernatural strength on top of that. How many people did it take? They finally got him bound with chains, with irons, Scripture says, and he's able to break them. That's how strong he is. But then Jesus shows up, and we read in verse 6 something amazing. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, nearby hillside. The demons begged at Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits went out came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away. And began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Jesus made the demons afraid. Simply by saying, come out of him. 
No magic spell. No powders and drinks and formulas and overnight everyone would need to gather. No, no battle between the forces of good and evil. It's just leave. And they are afraid of his word. I don't know if you've ever, you know, read about you know, street fights, um, schoolyard fights. Oftentimes, those kinds of fights or, or gang fights, they, they don't tend to be won by those who just have the best weapons. They tend to be won by those who have the most people, right? The one who shows up to those kinds of, of rumbles, as, as uh, uh, they are called, when, tho- when those things happen, the person who wins or the person who has the most friends at the fight. And we like to watch movies where there's a hero who can take on three people or four people in those kinds of scenes and stand up to that kind of evil, right? We love, we love those kinds of stories. And yet, these are how many demons? A legion. Let me just say that the fact that the story would go on to mention 2,000 pigs dying gives you a hint at how many demonic forces were at play. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it's 2,000 to 1. Who do you think would win? You know who would win in a 2,000 to 1 fight. It's over. And yet here comes Jesus with the power of his word, simply speaking, leave. And they are afraid and terrified. They do not want to be tortured because they know that Jesus is God. They know that they can do nothing without his express permission. Because they know that Jesus is God and that Jesus as God does not just have ultimate power and authority over the natural forces of this world, but he has ultimate power and authority over the supernatural power of just his word. When I was a kid, I was an idiot. When I was in elementary school, someone somewhere in my head, you know, I don't know what it was from or why I'd heard it, you know, started to, you know, believe in yourself. You can do anything. You can take on any challenge that comes to you. You can stand up to anything that comes at you. Well, that just made me a cocky idiot. And so I ended up one day challenging another kid on the playground. And me and my stupidity, I took a swing at him. And he move faster than anyone I'd ever seen at that time. And he did that comic book TV moment where he just caught my hand and then just pushed me down and I just lay on the ground because that's all I could do. I thought I could take on anyone when I was a kid and I soon learned that I could not. And when I ran up against someone stronger than me, he smacked me silly. He embarrassed me, which is how easy he made it. That's what Jesus did to these demons just by speaking. Jesus is God. 
With the power of his word, he controls all of the natural forces of creation. Jesus is God because he, with just the power of his word, he controls all the supernatural forces in all of reality. His words don't just have power. His word is power. Christian, believer, the natural world obeys the word of Jesus. Christian, the natural, the supernatural world obeys the words of Jesus. Do you? Do I? Do you obey immediately or do you act more like me as a school kid running up to the bigger kid on the playground trying to take a swing at him like we're their equal? I don't know what you think about the power of Jesus. But as God... Jesus' very words have power. Words recorded for us. Right here. And what we do with that tells us whether we understand who Jesus is. The reason we don't like unlimited power in one person is that we know that the only response to unlimited power is to obey. And we'd rather have a choice. We'd rather be able to say that, ah, I, I, you know what, you, don't, you can't really do that to me. You don't have the right. With God, and with your concept of God, might makes right. As you wrestle with the unlimited, raw power of God in Jesus Christ, let me just encourage you to consider how you obey Him. There's more to the story that we're going to talk about next week. There's more to the story of what it means that Jesus has unlimited power, that God has unlimited power. There's more to the story, and that's coming next week. So, if you're watching online, circle your calendar for next week and join us next week. If you're in person, join us next week as well, because you won't understand the claims of Jesus if you do not catch both sides of this story. This is part A, part B. This is the cliffhanger that I'm leaving you with. But understand this about the power of Jesus. The disciples were terrified and that is not the response that Jesus is after. But the correct response is respectful. It is sobering. Because you and I can know without a shadow of a doubt that you never need to doubt his power. He is God, very God. And ultimately, when you come up against those with unlimited power, the only choice is to obey immediately. Power, unlimited power must be obeyed. And if 
the disciples knew then what they knew later. And if you knew back then when you wondered whether God really had power in this situation, whether you should really trust him to obey, whether you should consider going another path, now you know. The God who all of nature and all of the supernatural obeys as he speaks is our God. There is only one God. We are not him. And the power of Jesus deserves our respect, our submission, and our obedience without question. That is what followers of Jesus do. That is what people need to do. The natural and the supernatural obey his every word. What about you? What about me? Some questions for you as we close our time in God's word together. Just a couple of questions. They may come up in your growth group this week, but we'll walk you through them. Here they are. What comes to mind when you think of the unlimited power of God? What comes to mind when you think of the unlimited power of God? And question two, it's kind of a personal one, but it's worth wrestling through. Is there an area of your life where you need to surrender to what Jesus has said? Said to you personally, said through his word. All of the forces of the natural and supernatural obey the very words of Jesus. Let that be true of us. Because he is God and has power in his words. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this sobering reminder of who you really are. That you are not some kind of minor deity, that you are not some kind of important teacher, but your power over the natural and the supernatural, over all of creation, over all of reality, over heaven and earth and under the earth, which is the very power of your words, demonstrates that you are God. And Lord, I pray that this would not be just a moment where we feel a thing and then we leave or we turn off what, the screen and we just go about our day but that you would help us to really process that if nature obeys your words and the supernatural obeys your words, are we? Am I? And Lord, I pray that you would give every person who is uh, here, every person who's watching online, the courage to wrestle through that question because you are God. And we want you to be God to us. So help us, Father, to surrender the things that we need to surrender and trust you to obey you because your words have power. They have the power to change all of reality. And that's no movie. That's just who you are. 
So we thank you for the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.